Good morning, Monique. Good morning, Landon. Welcome to the Nursing Podcast. We are again in the nursing kitchen of knowledge. Kitchen of knowledge. Yay. Back together at last. Again. Should we sing Reunited? No. Okay. Please no. Because most of our listeners won't even know that song because it's from the 70s. Thank you very much. Yes. Well, we both have a microphone. We seem to have... I know we're a total COVID safe operation now because we each have our own microphone. And hopefully you both notice the sound has improved. I'll say improved. But what it really is, is you don't need to turn your volume down when Monique talks and turn it up when I talk. That's so rude. Which is the feedback we would get. So we now both have our own microphone. We are exactly two meters apart from each other (laughs) with a piece of plexiglass in between Between us. us. But no, we don't really have plexiglass between us. No, but we're socially distanced and we're both vaccinated. Double vaccinated. Exactly. Yes. And he's in my safe bubble. So we're good. Oh, I feel so honored. There you go. So this month, yes. what, this is part one of two. Yes. And you know, it's interesting that our most popular podcasts ever are the one. Now they're all popular. Yes. Because we're so gonna... popular. But <laughs> but the, the highest um, listened to ones are the ones that deal with general stuff that we probably never really learned or we learned at one point and don't remember. Yeah. Um, and of that, the calcium magnesium phosphate one is our number one listened to ever podcast. And so the next two months, we are going to do uh, fluid and electrolytes. So fluids will be part one. Electrolytes will be part two mm-hmm. because when we look at our stats, people like just that basic, right, I forgot that about yeah. crystalloid versus colloid versus blah, blah, blah. And it's so, stuff we actually do every day. So I think it's always important for us to review it. If it's something that you know you do every day and you forget sometimes, oh, I, I've learned this once, but I use it every day and I've forgotten about it because there's something new, there's a shiny new toy totally. instead of looking at your old teddy bear that's been sitting there so, for a while. Right? So the, the genesis of this was from Alan Lai and Rob Paquin, who you may know them as the hosts of Recess Tonight, which is another podcast and they're like famous and Twitter and they yes. argue with all of you on Twitter and things because <laughs> they're more young and modern than Monique and I who yeah. old fashioned still haven't really figured out what Twitter's for. Mm-hmm. Um, but they asked us to contribute to the Epic COVID-19 course. And for those of you who don't know what Epic is, it's Emergency Practice Interventions in Care Canada. It's a course that mm-hmm. we run in Canada. Full disclosure, Monique and I are part of the national board that designed it. And when COVID started, they both came to us and said, we think there should be an Epic COVID course, Mm -hmm. to which we said, sure. And then they said, we think it should be free and online, to which we said, sure. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) And supported them. And I know a lot of people around the world, they have relationships with, wrote parts of that course, and they still maintain it to this day. So at Epic Learning dot ca e-p-i-c-c learning dot ca and you can take the free epic covid19 course that's still there um and they wrote that course in two weeks i know because it's alan and rob yeah and all their friends friends and all their friends together all their twitter friends who we're actually a bit amazed by the two of them really uh they are with actually all nurses out there who were willing to just throw their hat in volunteer in order for them to support just people to get who knowledge are going out there. through that. Yeah, amazing. So, so in as a part of that, they asked us to review fluid and electrolytes and relate it to the care of the COVID-19 patient. And so then it, as usual, came to our mind of let's do a podcast on that yes. because let's be honest, that way Monique only had to write something once. Yes. Because I did nothing as part of this, <laughs> as per usual. 
So fluid therapy is still one of the mainstays in patients with shock or cardiovascular compromise. As our understanding of critically ill patients has evolved, we now understand that we need to regard fluids just like any drugs that we administer. Mm -hmm. And I know when we both started, you know, two large bore IVs, two liters of saline. Yeah. And like, if you did that, everything would just be great in the world. Absolutely. Of yeah. course, they, all the patients died a week later, but we didn't <laughs> see that because we were in our little emergency department bubble. So I'm going to tell you how old I am because we used to have to calculate drops. We would watch oh, yeah. drops oh, yeah. and calculate drops. Now, every fluid is run through a machine. And I used to think, why do you need that? Because you could just look at the drops. But clearly, now that we think of fluid as medicine, you can't just open it up and just let it go, right? I know. It's interesting because I still run a lot of lines by gravity and people look at me like why isn't it on a pump exactly do we put this on it's just saline why would i I put this on a pump exactly so it is kind of an evolution so like a drug we need to think about why we're giving fluids which fluids we choose and how do we reliably measure the outcome or is the drug having its effect yeah so as nurses we need to monitor a fluid responsiveness potential harms from overzealous fluid administration and be conscious about blindly following protocol-led treatments without considerations of income of income (laughs) of clinical outcome clinical outcome not clinical income yes exactly so before we get right to it let's start with a quick review of fluid balance i think one of the confusing things perhaps that's just me is all the terms that you hear when we talk about fluids in the body like intracellular extracellular intravascular extravascular so i think it's important for us to try to sort that out in our minds so the human body and its individual body fluids can be conceptually divided into various fluid compartments though not literally anatomic uh, compartments so the two main fluid compartments are intracellular and extracellular The intracellular compartment is a space within the cells and the extracellular, which is outside of the cells, makes sense. Um, They are separated by cell membranes. And the extracellular fluid, um, which is outside the cells, are further divided into three. Interstitial fluid, which is surrounding the cells, the blood plasma and lymph, uh, which is inside the blood vessels and the lymphatic vessels. And finally, small amounts of transcellular fluid, like ocular fluid and uh, cerebral spinal fluids. So another way to chiefly um, to classify body uh, fluids is intravascular and extravascular. So intravascular is inside the vessels, blood plasma and lymphatic vessels, and extravascular is outside the vessels. So really what we're talking about is the vascular system, tissue and cells. Human beings are mostly water, ranging from about 75% in infants to about 50 to 60% in adult men and women and as low as 45% in old age. Don't say it, Landon, don't say it. So you're at about 38%? Thank you very much. See, knew it, knew it. Okay. I, I so, wasn't even going to catch that one until oh, you looked I at had me. To, yeah, okay. So two-thirds of your total body fluid is intracellular, and the remaining third is extracellular, which is d- divided into plasma and interstitial fluid. So in a normal state, total fluid volume fluctuates by less than 1%, and fluid intake should be balanced by fluid loss. Kind of makes sense. So when we talk about the location and the amount of fluid in our bodies, we talk about intracellular, extracellular. When we discuss how fluid is exchanged, then we discuss intravascular and extravascular. So fluid shifts occur when your body fluids move between the intravascular and extravascular fluid compartments. So intravascular include the cardiac chambers and the vascular system itself, whereas the extravascular includes everything else. 
So fluid moves very easily between these compartments and the extent of this movement is determined primarily by the balance between hydrostatic and oncotic pressure. Water will move from one space into the next passively across a semi-permeable membrane until the hydrostatic and osmotic pressure gradients balance each other. And I'm surprised Landon isn't actually commenting on the fact that I'm actually using my hands to show the fluid balance. There is and flowing <laughs> hands of fluid moving just, back and forth. I know, I was like, oh gosh, I'm actually explaining this while I'm thinking you're seeing me move my hands back and we forth. We need a video podcast. I know, this is crazy. Kitchen of Knowledge. Uh, crazy. All right, well, let's see if we can explain hydrostatic and osmotic pressure gradients. From inside the capillaries, think of hydrostatic pressure as the pushing force pushing fluid out of the capillaries. It's the result of the actual pressure of the fluid on the capillary walls. And Monique's getting a phone call on her landline, which, and her answering machine is going to answer it. Yes, Monique has this thing called a landline, which I know 98% of you don't even know what that is. Um, I've been anyway. getting a lot of scan phone calls, by the way. Yes, whatever. the tax department is putting yes. you in jail. Yeah. So, to review, hydrostatic pressure is the pushing force of pushing fluids outside of the capillary walls. Osmotic pressure, or oncotic pressure, or colloid osmotic pressure. I know, too many names. I know. So basically... Yeah. Osmotic pressure is a good way of doing it. It's the yeah. pulling force, pulling fluids from the surrounding tissue into the capillaries. These pressures are typically balanced equally. The lymphatic system then transports any extra fluid back into the intravascular compartment. Therefore, any change in the balance of these pressure that results in more fluid than the lymphatic system can transport will lead to edema. Yeah. And, and I, I think of these as you know, lots of big words. Yeah. I think of this as water moves yeah and so if you have lots of bits on one side and not very many bits on the other water mm -hmm. moves to dilute those bits so yeah. that the average concentration of bits is the same on both sides exactly it's much easier to move have water move these and if there's too and much forth. and you can't get rid of it then it backs up and you get edema totally yeah so how does this look clinically think about a patient with chf or renal failure mm -hmm. the pumping force of the heart should help keep a normal pressure within the blood vessels. If the heart begins to fail, the pressure changes and can cause severe water retention. And what you see in your patient is either dependent edema or pulmonary edema, depending on which side of the heart. In kidney failure, where the kidneys are no longer able to filter fluid out of the blood and turn it into urine, you will again see peripheral edema because there's just too much fluid. fluid. Yeah. And so the hydrostatic pressure pushes it into the, into the extravascular space. Protein levels are also important. Protein attracts water and plays an important role in water balance. Remember the bits. So protein is one of the bits. So if you got mm. too many bits outside the blood vessel, yeah. water's going to follow and you're going to swell up. So low protein levels in the blood caused by malnutrition, kidney and liver disease can also cause edema. The proteins help to hold salt and water inside the blood vessels. So fluid does not leak out into the tissues. If albumin, for example, which is a blood protein gets too low, fluid is retained and edema occurs, especially in the feet, ankles, and lower legs. In starvation, you also often see people with an enlarged abdomen because the abdomen is swollen with edema and or water retention due to the lack of protein in their diets. So it's all this like bits trying to be diluted or mm -hmm. cause dilution or too much pressure pushing fluid out 
uh, of the blood vessels into the cells. So how does this support our clinical practice? Well, volume status is a term that relates to the extracellular space, which is our intravascular and interstitial spaces. So treating the extracellular space is key to accessing and managing our intracellular space. So when we talk about recess or shock states, we often talk about improving circulating volume and cardiac output. But the real goals are to restore cellular perfusion and to correct any electrolyte and metabolic imbalances. So calculating fluid requirements, intake equals output, uh, in the presence of some clinical situation like hemorrhage, GI bleeds, renal failure, third spacing, CHF, with an understanding of fluid shifts and the pathophysiology, pathophysiological state ensure that we come up with a goal-directed fluid and electrolyte therapy. So at the beginning, we talked about the three factors when it comes to fluid resuscitation in critical care. So why, the indication, the choice of fluid therapy and assessment of the desired clinical outcomes, which actually really translates back to kind of what the goal is or kind of the... Framework. Um, the framework of our EPIC course, uh, which is POP. It's a POP framework. And what we look at is the problem, which is the indication, uh, the objectives, which are our clinical outcomes, objectively, and then our choice of fluid, which becomes the plan. So we're going to kind of talk about how fluid resuscitation happens around those problem, objective, and plan. Perfect. So let's start with problem. Okay. Um, fluids are by far the most commonly administered IV treatment in patient care. During critical illness, fluids are widely administered to maintain or increase cardiac output, hoping to prevent tissue hypoperfusion and hypoxia. However, the effect is inconsistent. In many instances, fluids do not result in any hemodynamic benefits and can actually cause harm. We've certainly seen that in patients with ARDS and in sepsis. Although it is difficult to determine if it was the fluid administration or the illness severity itself that causes most harmful effects, what we do know is that it is important to be cautious in our fluid administration and to know why we're doing it. It's, it's so strange that, and now that we look back, that mm-hmm. for years it was like, we'll just put an IV in and run it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where, and when, when we were not asking why are we doing that, it just seemed, well, some fluid's probably good. Yeah. But it's interesting because fluid and oxygen is the same thing. If a little bit of fluid is helpful, more will be helpful. If a little bit of oxygen is helpful, let's give them more. Let's give them more. And now we're like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe that's harmful. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Soon, soon it's like all the medicine is going to be like, go take a one day first aid course and do what they tell you. Because that was probably right to start with. Exactly. So management around COVID-19 seems to be around the management of most viral pneumonias causing respiratory failure. So ARDS really, right? Yeah. Yeah. The statistics for the patient population are an older population with comorbid diseases, and therefore our management should obviously take this into consideration. There are patients who may have cardiovascular compromise and are more susceptible to fluid overload. The principal feature of severe disease in COVID is the development of ARDS. Evidence-based treatment guidelines for ARDS include conservative fluid strategies for patients without shock following an initial fluid resuscitation. So the take-home message here is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all fluid resuscitation formula. Disease processes are dynamic, and their response to fluid may change over time. Specific disease states may also require different fluid therapy. The guiding principle should be conservative fluid strategies for patients without shock. And really, we're going to tie them to an objective. Yes. What are we aiming for? Let's if we're giving fluid, yeah. 
why yeah and what am i aiming for and how do i know when to stop exactly so we're going to tell that objectives yeah so really what you've said is that the problem is that they don't have enough fluid right which means that they don't they don't have good cardiac output and they're hypoperfused that's that's our problem right and uh so the next thing is well if if that's our problem and where they don't have enough fluid, how do we measure? What, what's our end goal? What? How do we make sure that they have good cardiac output? And what's not, that going to look like? What does that look like? So really, the next thing in POP is the objectives or the clinical outcomes. So how do we know whether we are achieving the desired clinical outcomes? In this case, organ or cell perfusion. So indirectly, what some people would call surrogate markers of organ perfusion would be mean arterial pressure, central venous oxygen saturation, lactate, cardiac output. We also look at other markers of circulation, peripheral pulses, cap refills, skin turgor, urine output. We could also measure blood electrolytes and acid-base balance as other objective measures of clinical outcomes. I think one of the most important concepts in resuscitation is volume responsiveness, or the ability of the cardiac output to increase in response to a fluid challenge. In the critical care world, they have moved away from static measures of venous filling like central venous pressure or uh, pulmonary artery occlusion pressure uh, to a more dynamic means of assessing patient's volume responsiveness. Measures that are being used include stroke volume variation, pulse pressure variation, uh, passive leg raising, and small fluid challenges. We are not going to go into this in great detail, but there's some really interesting literature out there about all of these different measures. At the end of the day, it's imperative before administering fluid that the team decides what are the objective measures or desired clinical outcomes which need to be dynamic and responsive to the change in the clinical course. So what I'm actually saying is you give a little bit of fluid, you decide what of your measures are um, that you're achieving. If you're not going there, you need to say, oh, wait a minute, we need to adjust this and not just say, oh, this is this is the intervention or this is it and we're just going to keep on going despite yeah. what your patient is doing. That's not what is the right thing to do. Totally. And and these should be objective yes. objectives. Yes, not just they we look want, better. <laughs> we want the heart rate to be, to be less than 100. Exactly. Not we want their pressure to come up yes. and their heart rate to go down. Exactly. We're so bad at the fluffy terminology in, in medicine because no one yeah. re really wants to commit to as an exact number. But, you know, as a nurse, you can do a lot Yeah. for yourself and for the next three shifts by saying, what are we actually aiming, aiming for? for? I need a number. Exactly. And, and I you, want the map you, to be this. I, I want, want a the map pulse of pressure 65. to be this. Absolutely. Because then when you phone people back at three in the morning who may or may not be receptive to that phone call, I won't criticize any of my healthcare <laughs> colleagues, you can say, well, we agreed, map yes. of 65, map is now 58. Yeah. It's very objective. Yeah. It's not, I'm calling you because I think their pressure is still soft. It's like, no, we, we agreed on 65, it is 58, do something. Excellent. So now, finally, let's talk about the plan. So we did problem, objective, now we're going to talk about plan. And in this case, it's going to be choice of fluid. Osmosis and osmotic pressure are essential players when it comes to IV fluids in the cells. In fact, IV fluids are specifically designed to create a certain reaction in your cells based on osmosis and depending on what you're trying to achieve. That's why you have 27 different options of exactly. IV fluids. If it was just water we needed to put in, you would just have W. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's funny, we don't have W, do I guess we have sterile D water. 
65W, but not but just W. Yes, that's just true. Just not W. No, I know. We Maybe do have sterile water we in a bag, but H2O. we just use it for the ventilator. <laughs> I guess we don't put sterile water in people's veins. There's your no. lesson of the day, I guess. Um, so when we talk about IV fluids and solutions, what we're really discussing is how these solutions affect osmotic pressure in the cells. Basically, you want to give your patients a solution that has the tonicity that is opposite to their problem. For example, if your patient is dehydrated, their blood is hypertonic. It still has all the bits. Yeah. It just doesn't have much water to go with it. They will need a hypotonic solution to bring their tonicity back within normal ranges because they're already hypertonic. Yeah. So you give them a hypotonic, hypotonic solution. So the opposite. And it should help things come back into balance. So let's just review some basic IV fluids before we talk specifically about COVID-19 because, you know... COVID's the excuse for everything, so let's <laughs> include it everywhere. Yeah. So IV fluids are either crystalloids or colloids. A crystalloid or colloid solution can also be isotonic, hypotonic, or hypertonic. So that's important. So you first split is crystalloid or colloid, yeah. and then each of those can have all three. Yes. There's all three within those. Yeah. Crystalloid solutions contain small molecules that easily flow across semi-permeable membranes. So think of the cell membrane as a strainer. Crystalloid solutions, or the particles in them, are small enough that they can get through the holes in the cell membrane. This means that crystalloid solutions are good at traveling into the cells and making the contents of the solution available for use. Crystalloids are usually the ones with electrolytes in them. So the, yeah. the small things we're talking about are electrolytes, yeah. typically, because and water. Yeah. Because of this, crystalloids are used to increase fluid volume and intravascular volume, like in hypovolemia. Colloid solutions, unlike crystalloid solutions, contain larger molecules. And so that could be proteins or mm -hmm. fancy, complicated starch molecules that are just too big to do anything but stay in the blood. So, and because of this, they don't cross the semi-permeable membranes as readily. So this means that colloid solutions remain intravascular. They stay in the blood vessel. And when you have lots of bits mm -hmm. in the blood, and not in the cells, it pulls water into the blood to dilute the bits. So they create, they are called plasma expanders. Yeah. You create more plasma because you're sucking fluid in from everywhere else into the blood, which can either get peed out in the kidneys, restore normal balance, or render you in a overhydrated intravascular state Space, and you yeah. go into congestive heart failure. So, <laughs> you know, again, know why you're doing, doing this. Okay, so that's crystalloid, colloid. Isotonic, now we're going to talk about the next three splits. Isotonic solutions have solute concentrations that are different than those of the cells. This means that there is, sorry, that are not different than those of the cells. This means there is no concentration gradient across the cell membrane. So the cells don't expand or shrink in the presence of an isotonic solution. Since isotonic solutions maintain osmotic pressure on the inside and the outside of the cell, they're often used to treat vomiting, diarrhea, shock, metabolic acidosis, among a few other things. Normal saline or Ringer's lactate is an example of an isotonic solution. Because it's an even one, right? Right. It's even in its tonicity. Yes. What's important, and I think where we, we fail a lot of times, especially mm -hmm. with the term normal saline. Yes. Here comes the soapbox. I know. It won't be about vaccination this time. No is we use a word like isotonic. Yeah. So it's equal. Yeah. We then have normal saline. So it's normal. Yeah. The reality is isotonic solutions are not completely metabolically balanced. Exactly. So normal saline, for example, is sodium and chloride. Has no bits. Yes. <laughs> yes, the 
osmolality of the fluid is the same as intracellular yes. fluid. So you're not necessarily going to get huge fluid shifts, but you are only giving sodium and chloride into a body that has lots of other things as well. So lots of saline will give you lots of sodium, lots of chloride, and dilute the magnesium, potassium, exactly. phosphate, blah, 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 blah. All, all the, the electrolytes, yeah. So it's important that we don't just look at normal saline as, oh, well, let's give it. By the way, the pH is like five. Yeah. So you're also inducing acidosis. but. So just important, isotonic is only talking about that osmotic Modic gradient. Yes. It's not talking about it's giving the same fluid that's already inside their body. Okay, off my soapbox. Get vaccinated. <laughs> um, hypotonic solutions have solute concentrations that are lower than those of the cells. So that means that in an effort to balance that concentration, water will rush into the cell, causing it to expand. Because hypotonic solutions create cell swelling, patients who receive these solutions have to be monitored for hypovolemia and hypertension because you're now giving something that's going to have all the fluid from the blood vessels go into the cells. Yeah. And what's left behind in the blood vessels? Possibly just sludge. Yeah. So you wouldn't want to give these, um, I was just going to say medications, fluids. Yeah, you wouldn't want to give yeah. these fluids to people with, say, increased intracranial pressure their cells are already have no space to, exactly. to work in and now you're going to cause a bunch of fluid to go into the cells and swell the brain even more yeah um so d5w in the body yeah and half normal saline are example of hypotonic solutions so they restore cell puffiness yeah. at the expense of possibly inducing hypovole relative hypovolemia in the blood vessels mm -hmm. okay Third kind, hypertonic solutions have higher solute concentrate than those of the cells. So again, in order to balance the solution, water will move to where the bits are and water will flow out of the cell, causing the cell to shrink and relative increase in intravascular composition. So it's kind of almost the same effect as a colloid, yeah. but it's not using the complex protein or starch molecule. Hypertonic solutions, where you may see them used is in hyponatremia or increased intracranial pressure. Because cerebral edema and elevated intracranial pressure are significant causes of morbidity and mortality in patients with intracranial tumors, hematomas, traumatic brain injuries, infarcts, etc., uh, hypertonic saline can be considered. How it works is that the hypertonic saline increases the osmolarity of the blood which allows fluid from the extravascular space to enter the intravascular space, which leads to a decrease in brain edema, improved cerebral blood flow, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Now, because hypertonic solutions are especially risky as it can result in intravascular fluid overload and pulmonary edema, same as I said with colloid, you, yeah. suck, you need to know where this fluid is going, going to go exactly. before you suck it all into the blood vessels. And in you or me, well, maybe not you because um, <laughs> you're old, but uh, you know, in, in, in us, that's going to go to our kidneys and get peed out. Mm -hmm. In someone whose kidneys don't work, it's going to collect in the intravascular space and hopefully their heart can keep up. And if it can't, it's going to back up into their lungs. So just exactly. that's why these are sort of... So that's what you have to watch for that, right? Like you're giving that fluid, but you're you listening. That's why you need to know what exactly. you're giving. Right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, so example of hypertonic solution is 3 or 5% saline. So normal is 0.9% saline. So 3% saline is, you know, something that can be given. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in summary, hypotonic 
Hypo means low, yeah. low bits. So highly solvent, meaning it is going to move, move out fast. of the blood. Yeah. Isotonic equal. Yeah. Hypertonic high. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Just think, and the way I think about this is intravascular. It's how I remember it. Yeah. When someone says, "I'm this is a hypertonic solution," I think it is going to hyper yeah. the intravascular fluid. Yeah. It's going to put more fluid in the blood vessels. It's it's important when you make that distinction though that you're not necessarily resuscitating with this mm -hmm. because just putting more uh, fluid in the vessels will make your blood pressure look great. Yeah. But your cells are still hypoperfused exactly. and now you've shrunk them down and they have no fluid left in them. Exactly. So that's why we don't resuscitate with hypertonic solutions. <laughs> yes, it'll give you a great blood pressure, but they'll die. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Carrying on, let's talk about COVID because there's no <laughs> there's nothing else in the universe to talk about anymore. Well, actually, I'm. A I'm actually going to talk about um, fluid resuscitation in ARDS, and then I'm going to let you extrapolate that to see okay. how that would oh, work make for me COVID. Talk about I'm going COVID. to make you talk about it. Um, so, in December 2018, there was an article in uh, BMC Anesthesiology, and they were looking at fluid choices in the critically ill patients, and they reviewed several studies and drew their conclusions around fluid resuscitation and ARDS. So this article was in the before times. Yes, it was before COVID. Um, but oh, because the before of, times. I know. Do you remember way back when, when it was before COVID? No. No, neither do I. Okay. <laughs> so um, these are some of the conclusions that they looked at uh, with ARDS and fluid resuscitation. So one, crystalloids have the highest benefit risk ratio and should generally be prescribed first. Uh, two, when a critically ill patient requires large amounts of fluids, balanced solutions like Ringer's lactate or plasma light should be preferred as they have favorable effects on patient outcome. Three, Preferred solution for non-critically ill patients or low volume recess is less clear. However, given the availability of balanced solution and their low cost, they should be considered for all patients. So plasma light, ringer's lactate. And then specifically, I'm going to let you guys talk about it, but the timing and dose of fluids to be administered must be evaluated per case, taking into account the etiology of the ARDS. Was it a burn? Was it a, a TBI? Um, was it a infection? Uh, what other patient comorbidities and hemodynamic and respiratory condition? So I think at the end of the day, what, we're, what they're saying is a, what we said at the beginning. There isn't a one formula fits all because patients are complex. And so you start with some general principles, but you need to look at clinical outcomes to actually base it and it should be a dynamic process. It shouldn't be like, oh, let's wait a day and see what happens. We need to say, okay, in 30 minutes, what is the effect? Right. What, in 60 minutes, do we need to change that? Um, and I think that that's more responsive based on clinical outcomes. So I'm going to let you talk so, about how that would relate to COVID-19. Yeah, so although their article was written in the before times, yeah. we can translate, extrapolate a little bit into the after times. And so fluid management with patients with ARDS has significantly improved over the last two decades, but there are some things that require clarification. So specifically that you could extrapolate to COVID patients, conservative strategies seem to lead to better oxygenation and shorter periods of mechanical ventilation. Although the evidence supporting it is still moderate quality, conservative fluid administration is recommended in patients with ARDS. Makes sense. It does make sense. And I think those of us who kind of worked in ICU back in the ARDS times yeah. when everyone got ARDS 
you, you know that when they came up from Emerge and had six liters of saline in them, it was like, oh, start the clock in five days, they're going to have ARDS. So I think we, we sort of observationally knew that. And, and obviously, mm-hmm. a lot of the research in the last 20 years has proven that. Uh, the type, timing, and dose of fluids to be administered must still be reevaluated per case, taking yeah. into account the etiology, as you said before, yeah. um, comorbidities, hemodynamic and respiratory condition. Like our message here is put some thought into it, people. Yeah, exactly. Don't just tick the box on the pre-printed orders that everyone gets normal saline one liter. Um, the type of monitoring use is less important than the composition of fluids administered and the overall fluid balance. So. Yeah. So we've covered quite a bit. About I think, well, fluid about resuscitation. fluid resuscitation. And I think there's a lot of, like I said, I think a lot of these things we learned back in the day. And I think sometimes when we're not, you know, you kind of wonder about people just writing down an IV fluid and really understanding why they chose that based on your patient, I think is really important. We're the ones administering it. We're the ones to see the effect of those drugs. So I think it's important for us to know all of those things. So we're gonna just summarize some very key points. One, in general with uh, critically ill patients are, and with COVID and ARDS, conservative fluid management is better. Uh, two, balanced fluid. So things like ringer's lactate or plasma light is probably better. And three, clinical objective outcomes should direct fluid therapy. You shouldn't just say, just give them two liters. You need to, even in sepsis, we were seeing, you know, give them a liter, see how it goes. Mm-hmm. If it's no better, let's do this. And when I say no better, if their heart rate doesn't go below this, if their lactate is not decreasing, if their cap refill isn't improving, if their MAP is not more than 60, then do this, right? So right. very objective things. I want their MAP at 60. I want their urine output at 50. I want right their heart rate to drop by 10 um, beats per minute. And, and I think where the, the fourth one I'm going to add here, where our role as nurses can really be leveraged is in challenging that objectivity. Yeah. And not leaving orders, not allowing orders to be written in a non-objective way of just normal saline at 100 cc's per hour yeah and and asking that what are we aiming for here and mm-hmm. and i get it inpatient care they may just need some hydration that's that's an mm-hmm. appropriate they're not going to be eating and drinking as much they're sick that's that's an appropriate reason but if we're just ordering fluid let's let's ask that question at least mm-hmm. why are we giving this and what's our end point Absolutely. and our end point isn't make them better our end point you, you as a nurse can say no I, i'd like to know what do you want their heart rate to be what do you want their map to be? And you know what? You'll be wrong sometimes. And well, map isn't appropriate in this patient. Oh, well, you learned something. Yeah. <laughs> go home and go, I can leave now. I learned something exactly. today, right? Yeah. And and my last thing, I know this isn't even on the notes, but that's again, okay. soapbox, uh, is know what's in these fluids. Mm-hmm. And this is not something, and, and again, I swear 80% of you are about to be floored. Mm-hmm. What's in the fluid is on the bag. Yes. <laughs> and I know it's like one point font all the way down the bag. And all you ever look for is 0.9% sodium chloride. Yeah. The chemical formula is the rest of that microprint. So pull out an IV bag. You don't even need to whip out your phone. And you can look and see that the pH of sodium chloride is crap. And mm-hmm. it's hypernatremic, hyperchloremic to the body, right? Like this is mm-hmm. not the best fluid. And then pull out plasmalite. 
And I love plasmolite because you can pull out plasmolite and then pull out your normal lab values. And you go, oh, look, sodium 140, potassium 4.1. Like it's all the exact middle of all of your electrolyte lab values. Mm -hmm. And that's why we say plasmolite's a great fluid to use. Ringer's lactate, metabolically balanced as well, but it's not 100% right down the middle of your normal lab values. Um, Sodium chloride, it isn't. Yeah. It's not to say it's horrible yeah it's just horrible if it's what you keep using over and over in the same patient once they've had a couple of liters it's like oh well now they're hyperchloremic and good luck fixing that (laughs) exactly anyway so but it should it should i think translate to how you stock a hospital and you know that the clinical decisions about what you buy and what you actually stock in your Uh, emergency department should be reflective on the evidence. So if you go into uh, an emergency department and you have maybe one or two bags of plasma light and 300 bags of normal saline, perhaps that needs to be addressed in a larger uh, level and that that the clinical should dictate what you have available. And I I love one of, you know, I I love human factors engineering and, and that concept of engineering systems not yeah. people and I, I remember fondly god it was probably 10 or so years ago in our trauma room in our hospital large teaching hospital that yeah. we had and our trauma services um which is a separate service from emergency um really wanted to start using plasma light and said over and over plasma light's best let's use plasma light let's use plasma light and every time i can remember this specific trauma surgeon who we both love and adore and respect yeah. he's retired now but would come in and it just was like disappointing your father when he would look and go, so you hung Saline again. And go, oh God. And I'm even one of the ones who like yeah. is trying to believe in this new thing. Yeah. So what did we do? Took Saline out of the trauma room. Yeah. When it's the only thing you can grab is plasma light. Yeah. Well, they're all going to get plasma light, aren't they? Exactly. And so same thing when, when you have a hundred bags of Saline there and two of plasma light, just the psychological thing of well obviously everyone gets the one that there's lots of and that other one must be special exactly reverse it yes and cost is negligible yeah especially because the in the in the the end side effects if you look at the dollar cost plasma lights like a dollar something and a liter of saline is like eight cents or something like yes the cost is different but in the grand scheme of things you're spending Mm -hmm. an extra dollar on each patient and you're possibly avoiding a hyperchloremic acidosis or ARDS or these like yeah come which on, increases come on, time people. in hospital I don't care what kind of for-profit health system yes. you work in Doesn't invest the dollar to save the $80,000 ICU stay um absolutely anyway yeah that's our thing anyways I know that there was a lot of information it's a good review and I think we debated about doing both fluids and electrolytes, but we think we would rather just kind of separate it totally. and give you a bit of a chance to kind of figure out fluids. And then we're going to talk a little bit about electrolytes next time. So that's all we have to say. Yeah. Happy whatever month this is. It is. I know. I we're know. kind of lost. Happy COVID month 99. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hopefully at some point um, we will be back on track. Um, and until then, please stay safe. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at NursumPodcast. Podcast.
We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.